This is the second part in our study looking at the doctrine of man. And tonight we're going to look at the topic of male and female. Okay, male and female. Last week we looked at the image of God. What is the image of God? And tonight we're going to look at male and female. Preparing this series ahead of time, not understanding what was going to be put up in the legislature this past week. Uh, Bill C-16... Uh, was put forward in, the, in our parliamentary, um, or sorry, in the parliament this past week, and this new legislation is all about gender. And I want to read to you the summary page of that new legislation. It says, "This enactment amends the Canadian Human Rights Act to add gender identity and gender expression to the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination." The enactment also amends the criminal code to extend the protection against hate propaganda set out in that act to any section of the public that is distinguished by gender identity or expression and to clearly set out that in that act to any section of the public that is distinguished by gender identity or gender expression um, that evidence of an offense was motivated by bias, prejudice or hate based on gender identity or expression constitutes an aggravating circumstance that a court must take into consideration when it imposes a sentence. Our province did the same thing this past November with Bill 7 when they amended the Alberta Human Rights Act and the School Act to add gender identity and gender expression as protected grounds, non-discriminatory grounds, and someone can also file a complaint to the Alberta Human Rights Commission and now the Canadian Human Rights Commission to report discrimination or hate propaganda or any kind of um, message which would seem to marginalize those who, who subscribe to a gender identity or gender expression that is not one that is their biological gender. So it's a, official here now in Canada that gender is no longer a biological reality determined by science or determined by genetics or your genes or by your cells and your body. But now consists of two other things. Not only is it biological gender, but gender identity, which means what you in your mind understand your own gender to be, and it could match your biological biological gender or not. Um, it, it could be on a scale between masculine and feminine, anywhere in between. And we also have gender expression, which means your outward form of gender, which your clothes or your makeup or your hair could either be more feminine or masculine or somewhere in between. So identity, who you think you are, expression, who you present yourself to be, these are now protected grounds in our Canadian, or, or soon will be, uh, protected grounds in our Canadian and also provincial legislation. And so how should Christians think about this idea of gender? Do we really care what the world does? Is it really that big a deal? What, what should we think about this? Uh, how important is it? Is it a big deal? Well, we've seen over the past number of decades, um, not the sexual revolution that we're seeing now with homosexuality and with uh, transgenderism, but even before that, when we had the feminist movement. We see that now have its fruit come to bear in our churches, such that most churches uh, no longer understand a difference between men and women in the roles of home, in the home, and also in the roles of church. That is, the office of preacher or pastor can be filled by a woman or a man just equally well. And that is a, a battle that in most people's minds is done and gone. 
Uh, when we consider homosexuality, the kind of the, the second wave after that, the, the sexual revolution of homosexuality, we also see many churches say n- no and resist homosexuality and the scriptures teach otherwise. We also see many churches and, and, it, and it's continuing to gain moment, momentum in churches where people have this idea that homosexuality is okay. It's, it's, it's compatible with Christianity and you can be a, a homosexual Christian and that's okay. We, we want to welcome you in our churches. We want to be um, loving and tolerant because that's what Christ would have done. He would have, he would have eaten with the prostitutes and the sinners and the homosexuals. So we want you also in our congregation and, and you can live your lifestyle of choice here. And we see that growing in popularity in our day today. Now, the third wave of that sexual revolution is now transgenderism. And this has come upon us quite quickly. And now it's already a law um, that, that gender is no longer tied to who you are biologically or scientifically, but rather something that you conceive in your mind or express on your person. Now it remains to be seen how this new gender diversity is going to come to bear in our churches. Whether churches are going to say no or whether churches are going to, again, embrace this new movement in our culture. So is it important for us to hold a line on so-called traditional roles of men and women, on traditional marriage between a male and a female, on traditional gender? You know, even there's such a thing as traditional gender these days. But is, is, there, is, there, is it important that we as Christians hold the line on these things? And I think it's so important. And it's not important because it's traditional, but it's important because it's biblical. And what I want to do tonight is go to Genesis 1 and see how these issues are the very foundation of the scripture, starting in Genesis chapter one. This is the foundation of scriptures and also the, the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is Satan going to do? You know, if Satan was to come in here and, and start trying to destroy, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, most Christians would be aware, okay, that he's, he's, he's attacking what we hold dear, Jesus Christ and, and his death and resurrection. But if Satan begins attacking that foundation of who we are as man and woman, a marriage, on sexuality, on gender. He can destroy that foundation. Our church. And soon churches realize that we have no foundation to stand on. And the gospel crumbles because we no longer have the foundation laid out for us in the first few chapters of Genesis when God created men and women. Okay, so this is a very important issue. And I think as a culture, as we continue to reject God reject his principles, reject his revelation that we as a culture are going to reap what we've sowed. And we're going to see Romans 1 come to greater, greater fruition when God turns us over to our various passions. And that's an expression of his wrath and of his judgment. Okay, so we're going to go back to the very beginning of scripture and on your handout, the very top of the first page, I have a quote from Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Okay, we're going to understand here God making male and female, it says, Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. We looked at that last week. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then Genesis 5, 1 and 2, God created man. 
he made him in the likeness of God or the image of God. And then verse two, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. Now, what's interesting is both in Genesis one and in Genesis five, when God mentions that he made man in his image, the very next breath, the the completion of that sentence was male and female, he made them. Okay, what what is the relationship here between God making man in the image of God and then male and female? We see these two ideas come together here. The image of God is not in man alone, as in someone who is male. Just the male does not put forth God's image. Rather, God's image is seen in both male and female. And what we're going to see tonight is how is God in his image, in his likeness, reflected in the sexes, in both male and female? How, if if we didn't have these, these diversity in general, being male and female, how we not see God's character reflected in his creation? Because we see God's image reflected when he made both men and women in male and female. Okay, that's, that's our task here tonight, to see how God's image shows up in the genders, in male and female that he has made. Okay, we see here in Genesis one twenty seven and in Genesis 5, 1 and 2, that when God made man in his image, he made them male and female. Okay, this, this idea goes together. Made in God's image means they're made male and female. So let's go through a number of points here. We're going to unpack God's image as it relates to God making us male and female. Number one, God's image in personal relationships. Okay, God's image is reflected, is is shown in personal relationships. God is a, a personal God. God is a relational God. We mean by he's personal means we, he has the capacity to relate, the capacity to love. You know, he's called a father. And not only do we see God being called a father to us as mankind, but we see God in himself. Okay, you think about God in his image, God in his likeness. Who is God? God is three in one, father, son, and spirit. And in the triunity, before there ever was anything created, we see God being a personal and relational God. We see the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit loving Father and Son. We see these dynamics. Even before there was creation, we see love, relationships within God himself in the Trinity. And we see this reflected now in God's creation between male and female. Okay, the relationships that are capable, especially in marriage, male and female, are reflective of God himself and his relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's look at this. Genesis 17, 5 and 24. It says, And now, Father, this is Jesus speaking here, praying, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then he says later on in that same prayer, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We can say that an essential attribute of God is his love. He didn't start loving when he made his creation. 
but rather God has always loved me. See that love between Father and Son and Spirit. Jesus is saying, God, I want you to, to take my disciples and all those who heard the word and believe and all those whom they're going to tell. And that would include us who have heard the word and believe. I want you to show them my glory and I want you to show them the love that you have loved me with before the foundation of the world. And we're going to have a chance to enter in on that. That's what I'd look forward to in eternity. Enter in on that inter-Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Spirit and see the glory that is shared between Father and Son and Spirit. Now this interpersonal relationship that God has in Himself is reflected now in His creation when He makes male and female. And especially when He makes Adam and Eve and He marries them in marriage, husband and wife, reflect this inter-Trinitarian love. Genesis 2.24 He says this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Diversity, two people becoming one. Okay, not a a perfect replica of the Trinity as in three in one, but yet an image, a likeness of who God is. We have male and female coming together to form one. Then Ephesians 5, 25, 28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And we see again the, the, the love between husband and wife, not only reflecting the image of God and who He is, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that inter-Trinitarian love, but here reflecting Jesus Christ in the church. Jesus Christ and His love for the church came before marriage. This passage is saying, marriage is an image, a representation of Christ and his love for the church. That's the mystery that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 5. So we have the relationship of marriage reflecting not only the image of God, but reflecting the nature of Christ and the church and this picture of love, of self-sacrifice, of care, of protection, of leadership, of sanctifying. That's all in this picture of marriage and it reflecting God and who he is and his love within himself and then his love between Christ and the church. That's why male and female is important. That's why marriage is important because male and female and marriage are reflections of who God is. When we corrupt male and female, when we corrupt marriage, we are, we are tampering with, we're corrupting the reflection of God in this earth that he has made to reflect himself, to show his glory shows greatness. So it's very important. That's the first one. Number two, God's image is seen in equality of persons and importance. Okay, God's image is reflected in male and female in equality of person and importance. Consider the triunity of God here. We're gonna, we have to, each one of these points, we have to consider who God is because we are a reflection of who God is, okay? a finite reflection of who he is. As we consider the, the triunity of God, the Trinity, when it comes to an equality of person, an equality of importance, we recognize Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. Okay, why do we believe the Trinity? 
Because the Bible teaches us so. The Bible says the Father is God. The Bible says the Son is God. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is God. There's an equality there in substance, in essence. The same stuff of which the Father is made of. The same stuff the Son is made of. The Spirit is made of. The same essence, Godness. Father, Son, Spirit are all God. They're, they're equal. They're all God. Same substance and equal in importance. It's not like the Father is not more important than the Son or the, the Son more important than the Spirit or the Spirit more important than the other two, but there is an equality in substance and an equality in importance and value and worth. That is who God is. And that's what the scriptures say. Now, in a reflexive way, men and women... Even though there's diversity in gender, there's an equality in our personhood. Both male and female are made of the same stuff. We're both human beings. We're both persons. We're both equal in value and worth and dignity. They're both, both equal in importance. Okay, so God's diversity in the Trinity, but yet his equality in his essence is reflected in the genders of male and and female, okay? Men are not more, or, or sorry, men are not inherently more godly than women. Or, or women not inherently more, more spiritual or more important than men. You know, the Bible says we, we have equal standing before God. We have equal value and worth. We're both created in the image of God. We both reflect God's essence in this sense, an equality of value and dignity. Okay, we should not feel pride because of our gender. Neither should we feel inferior because of our gender, because we have equal importance and worth. Okay, consider Genesis 1, 27 now. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, God has created both male and female in his image. It's not just man in his image, but male and female is part of the image of God. And then, if you remember when Eve was created, I don't have this passage written down, but when Eve was created, what did Adam say when Eve was brought before him? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Here is my equal. Here's my partner. Here, here's one who is suitable for me. He, he named all the animals and there's no one like him. But now here comes Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Here comes my counterpart. So both women and men are equally important. Both depend on each other. Both are worthy of honor. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Okay? So Paul's saying there is an inequality here. Yes, Eve might have been taken from Adam's side, but now every man who's born in this world is born of a woman, okay? There's an equality between men and women. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Okay, there's a difference in gender. Peter calls the woman here a weaker vessel, but he says, as a man, honor the woman. She's worthy of honor. She's worthy of value, of dignity and respect. Why? Because she is a fellow heir with you, with Christ. This is what Galatians 3, 28, 29, we'll jump down to that one first. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, it doesn't matter your social standing, it doesn't matter your gender. We're all heirs according to the promised promise. We're all recipients of God's grace, both male and female. And the passage before that was 1 Corinthians 12, 7, this morning. Each and every one of us are given a gift, a spiritual gift given to us by God. And that's not based on your gender. All of us have a gift given to us by God, both male and female. There is no inferior group in the church. It's like there's no inferior person in the Trinity. There's no inferior group when it comes to salvation or, or giftedness or importance or membership or inheritance or grace or being a part of the body of Christ. Okay? No male and female, Paul says, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. That's the second point. God's image is seen in the equality of the genders and of their equal importance. The third thing we're going to look at here. God's image is seen in the difference in role and authority. Okay, God's image is, is seen and reflected in the difference now of role and authority. Okay, point number two, we, we see a sameness in equality and personhood and importance. And at the third point, we're going to see God's image reflected in the difference between role and authority. Okay, now consider again the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, sameness of substance, sameness of value, of importance, of worth, of dignity between Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet we also see within the Trinity, we see a difference of role, difference of authority. We see the Father planning, especially in Ephesians chapter 1, we see the Father planning, foreordaining before the foundation of the world. Choosing a people, ransoming a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, placing them into Christ so that he would present them before himself holy and blameless, a church without spot or wrinkle or blemish, as a demonstration of his glory to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, you see that the Father doing that as the architect, as a planner in Ephesians 1. We also see in, in Ephesians 1, we see Christ coming as the Redeemer. To give his blood. When he came and he, he says, I came to do the Father's will. And what does he mean by that? I came to achieve salvation. I came to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And with his blood, we are saved. By stripes, we're healed. Okay? And so that's what, that's what Christ came to do. His role is different than the Father. The Father didn't die on the cross. Father didn't come to shed his blood. That was what the Son did. And then we have the Spirit in Ephesians 1. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit takes the work of Christ and applies it to our hearts. The seal, the guarantee of our inheritance. That's what Ephesians 1 says. So the Spirit takes the work of Christ according to the will of the Father and, and opens up your heart and opens up your mind and takes up the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, takes that, that worthy atonement of Christ and applies it to you such that you are saved and redeemed. The Son doesn't do that. The Father doesn't do that. The Spirit does that. Father, Son, and Spirit are working together in unison in the work of salvation, both planning and executing, now applying that work of redemption. Think about Pentecost. Was it the Son that was poured out on them? Was it the Father that was poured out? No, it was the Spirit that was poured out on them. Okay, a difference in role, a difference in authority. Does the Spirit come to speak of Himself? No, He comes to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ. He comes to give glory to Christ. 
That's what the Spirit does. And then and the Son in turn gives glory to the Father. Okay, a difference of authority. We call this in theology the, the economy of the Trinity, the economic Trinity, meaning there's, there's a progression of Father and of Son and of Spirit. We can almost see like there's a rank, a structure of authority within the Trinity. There's equality of substance, quality of worth and of value. We see differences in roles and function. Now, if men and women are created in the image of God, we should see this attribute of the triunity of God reflected in the genders. And we do. Just like we saw God reflected in his equality and yet diversity, we see that reflected in the genders. And so too, we see a difference in role and authority reflected when God made male and female. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Okay? The head, authority, he's talking about here, the rule, the ruler, the head. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay? The head of every man is Christ, the head of Christ is the Father, and the head of a wife is her husband. Husband, here he's he's talking about differences in role, differences in authority between male and female, husband and wife. And he's applying it to the difference of authority that we see in the Trinity between Father and Son. That is how we see the reflection of God's image and his differences in authority between Father, Son, and Spirit. We see that reflected in when he created the male and female. We see God's differences in authority reflected in male and female in, in this headship of a husband being the head of his wife. Now, this one is perhaps the most controversial in our society today, so I want to spend a bit more time looking at this. You see next on your handout, it says, roles and authority, a product of the fall, question mark. At this point, the objection is raised. The distinction that we have in roles between men and women, the headship of the man over the wife, the headship of the men in the church over the women or the congregation is a product of the fall. When God came and, and gave the curse to Satan and the curse upon woman, that's when we see the differences between men and women and this, and this difference of equality and worth. And now we see the table shift and man is given authority over the woman as a form of judgment because sin has come into the world. Okay, I want to look at that objection because that's so common. Uh, listen to this one quote here by, by Gilbert. He's a, an egalitarian. It means he, he, he argues for equality between the genders in all things, including the marriage and in the church. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. I will butcher it. Uh, but he's written many books. He's a, he's a leading scholar in this area. And he says this in one of his books. He says, because it resulted from the fall... The rule of Adam over Eve is viewed as satanic in origin, no less than his death itself. And if you've had an opportunity to discuss some of these views of those who disagree, you recognize that that tensions and emotions get quite high because the other side of the argument is saying that a difference in authority between men and women is satanic in origin. This is the product of the fall. This is, this is the devil's doing. This is not God's design. But this statement is not correct. What we're going to see here is that the differences in role between Adam and Eve existed before there was sin in the world and that they're a reflection of God. 
That's what they mean by the creating the image of God. It's part of this difference in role and authority. Let's go through these quickly. First one, A. Adam was created first, then Eve. Okay, why do we understand that differences in role and authority are before the fall? Okay, this is before sin entered the world, but here's the first one. Adam was created first, then Eve. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, Genesis 2 gives us more detail. The creation account, Adam was made first. We can't argue that. Genesis 2, 18, and then 21 and 22 says this. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, why is this so important? Well, first it's important because as we look at the scriptures... The leadership of a family was always given to the firstborn. The firstborn was the inheritor, the leader of that family, passed on on the family from the patriarch and now to the the firstborn. And the next generation was then led by those who were born first. Second, Paul also speaks about the reason or, or or the order here of creation as the reason for reserving teaching and governing roles in the church for men and men alone. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, I do not permit, and this is not just Paul, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for, or because Adam was formed first, then Eve. So, so, so Paul here, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, takes the order of creation as an important theological point and why we have differences in the sexes, why we have a, a difference in the role and the authority in the church because of the order of creation, because God made male and female in a certain way, and we see it reflected in the authority and role of men and women now in the church. So that's the first point why we see that role and authority is not a product of the fall. Second, Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Okay, Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, or a helpmeet for him, if you like the King James, or a helper suitable for him. Okay, now, now scholars here would, would disagree with this term and say, well, the word helper doesn't mean, not talking about structures of authority, but, but God is described in scripture as a helper. And that's true. They say if God is described as a helper and God is greater in authority, he's, he's greater in worth, he's greater in role. So this is actually saying that, that women actually have a higher standing because they're the helper like God is a helper. Okay, and, and there's, there's some bit of truth in that. And you can see how that's some muddled logic Okay, but it, God is a helper, and, and I could say to my sons that I help them. You know, when they bring me a, a Lego creation that has just dropped on the floor and say, Dad, can you help me put this piece together? You know, I can, I can help them. But because I'm their helper in that sense does not mean that my role as a leader and as a parent and as a father is, is now my whole role is tied up with being their helper, suitable for them. Okay, that role distinction remains the same. It's like God is our helper. It doesn't mean that 
he is now subservient for us. And, and his purpose is tied up with, with helping us. Neither does the term uh, refer to that here. It doesn't mean that, that, that women are on equal standing in terms of their role. And rather this helper means that they're more important than a man because they're actually going to go down and, and help the man. Okay, it's talking about a, a helper fit for him. They, they were, woman here, Eve, was made to help Adam as someone to come alongside Adam and to help him in his tasks and responsibilities that God had given to him. We also see this word fit or suitable. And they also argue that this word in, in the Hebrew, if you, if you look at it and dissect it, it actually means in front of. And think of in front of, it has to do with this idea of importance and rank. Um, like you think a general, he's out in front. And so they say, again, this, this is not a help or fit for him, but rather some of, of greater importance than Adam has now come on the scene. And again, it's, it's a real twisting of the Hebrew language. And it sounds really eloquent when someone says to you, well, in the Hebrew, it actually means this, and it means that, and it means this. All right, but don't be deceived when someone just says, in the Hebrew or in the Greek, it says this. Because think about the own, our own English language. And, the, and Genesis 2.18 is similar to this. Think of someone said to you, think about the word butterfly. You know, where, where do butterflies come from? Well, flies go into butter. And then from the, the butter and the flies, out comes a butterfly. That's where we get butterflies from. And you think, that's ridiculous. A butterfly has nothing to do with flies or with butter. It's a completely separate creature. Okay, you, you just can't take a word alone and begin to break it down. But yet, people do that with the original language of the scriptures. And if you say here that a helper fit for him means a helper who's in front of or superior in rank, to Adam, well, you'd also have to read Psalm 119, 168, which says that God is, all our ways are before him or in front of him. And you have to say, well, we're, we, we must be more important than God since we are in front of him. But that's, that's, that's silly. It's ludicrous. Okay, it's clear in both the original language and in English that Eve was created as a helper suitable for Adam. Okay, her role is different than his. Not that it's not as important, but her role is different. Difference in authority, equal in importance, difference in role. And we see that again reflected in the New Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven seven to 10. For man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Here Paul is talking about differences in clothing and worship because a woman was made from man. Okay, and then he says in verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Okay, so Paul, again, the new covenant, pulls back to these truths in Genesis chapter 2 to say why we should have distinctions in gender reflected in our worship. Because of how God created the man and the woman. And what the man and the woman were created for should be reflected in our worship. Okay? That's the second one. Eve was created as a helper for Adam. Number C, or letter C. God names the human race man and not woman. Okay? God names the human race man, not woman. Genesis 5.2. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now, the pattern today is not to call it mankind even though we know what that means. We call it humankind. The pattern today is not for women to take the names of their husbands, the last names, 
rather to keep their own maiden name or perhaps add a hyphen. This is this is popular. Um, you know, started with the feminist movement. Now it's popular today. Many hyphenated names. You know, if you if you have a child in the hospital and you go to fill out the name of your child, you realize that that page is about, about three or four pages long, as you got to fill out all these different names because there's so many combinations. The reason why we had a woman taking the name of her husband was, again, reflecting the image of God, reflecting the authority inherent in a husband-wife relationship. And that's reflected in how God called the human race man, not woman. D, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. Okay, this happens after the fall. But God is calling Adam to account Genesis 3, 8 and 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay, even even though it was Eve that sinned, took the fruit and then gave it to Adam. Who is God going to look for? Adam. Adam, what have you done? Okay, he goes to the man first. Again, because of difference in role. E, Adam, not Eve, nor together, represented the human race. Okay, Adam, not Eve, nor together, represented the human race. Okay, Eve was the first one to sin, but yet the Bible's message is so consistent that it's Adam's sin. That caused the, caused the fall. That it's Adam's sin that is imputed to us. That's Adam's guilt and his sinful nature that is imputed to us. Why is that? Again, because the, the differences in role and authority are reflected in God and his ways. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Okay, we see a difference reflected in the genders, but yet Adam is our representative. Adam is our federal head, our covenant head, and you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. We can't be in Eve. We're not in Adam and Eve. We're not just in humanity. We're in Adam or in Christ because his role as a leader in that relationship is reflected in both the creation account and also in the representation of the human race. That's E, number F, letter F. The curse brought a distortion, a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. Okay, the curse did affect the man and the woman and their relationship, but didn't bring in new roles, but rather it distorted the current ones. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Notice, I'm not that Eve, you, you would have had no pain before in childbearing, but now you're going to have pain. Everything's different now. No, he says, I'm going to increase your pain in childbearing. It's going to be multiplied. Not that, you know, Eve didn't have children before she was a sinner, but if she had, no doubt it would have been painful. Okay, well, God's saying it's, it's going to be even greater pain. I'm going to increase. It's going to be multiplied. I'm going to, I'm going to take what was, what was natural before the fall, and it's going to be distorted. It's going to be cursed 
so too is the relationship between male and female. He says, your desire, Eve, shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, what does this mean? It's best to see here the word desire as desire to conquer, desire to rule, desire to have authority over her husband, but he shall rule over you. He shall be a tyrant to you. That's what this sin is going to do. Cause the woman to, to usurp her authority in that relationship. And then the man, because his authority is being usurped, he's going to respond as a tyrant to rule, to dominate her. That's the effects of sin. We see those things happening in our marriages. We see marriages falling apart everywhere because of these effects of sin in the marriage relationship. Okay, now why do I understand this text to be that way? Look at Genesis 4, 6, and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Almost an exact parallel in the language. But here we have Cain, not Eve. And here we have sin, not Adam. Okay? And so here it says, it says, sin, desire is for you, Cain. What does it mean by that? Sin, desire is to rule you, to control you, to, to usurp you, to take you over. And he says, but you must rule over it. You must dominate sin in your life. You must, must put it to death. You must quench it. We see the same language reflected in the sinful curse between male and female. Woman desires to rule over her husband, but yet her husband is going to dominate over her. This is because of the curse, the perversion of rules, not the creation of rules. The last letter, G. Redemption in Christ reaffirms the creation order or restores the creation order. Okay, reaffirms the creation order. Christ came to break the power of canceled sin. Christ came to reverse the curse. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Look at 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so if Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and if we have the roles of men and women being a product of the works of the devil, we should see them destroyed. And we should see Christ saying, no, this is not that way. But rather, here's a new and better way. What does he do? No, he, he reaffirms the roles that we have before the fall. Look at these commands, part of the new covenant in Christ. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, in Christ. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do you see how this destroys the work of the devil? Do you see how this restores God's original design in the garden? Because what was the curse in Genesis 3.16? Eve and the desire of women was to exercise authority and to rule over their husbands. Not to submit to them, but to rule them. And what was the response of the husbands under the curse? To be harsh with them, to dominate them. And then what is the new command in Christ? Wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, 
Love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Do not dominate them. Do not be a tyrant. But be like Christ to them. Ephesians 5, 23 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Okay, well, we see these difference in roles are created before the fall. They are marred by the fall. And then we see Christ restore and reaffirm those gender roles that God has made as a product of his image before the entrance of sin and the curse of sin. Now, in our day and age, there's a few words before we close here. In our day and age, men can either be tyrants or we can be passive and abdicate our authority, abdicate our rule, and just give it to the women, either in the church or in the home and workplace, and say, I, I'm out. I'm just going to check out. I'm just going to go in the basement and play video games and watch sports and TV. And that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to rule the world with my thumbs. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vanquish the enemy with the pixels on the screen because I'm a man. That's what we do in our day and age. That's manhood. It's a joke. It's boyhood. Okay, that's, that's passivity. That's not leadership. And neither is it tyranny. As men, what does it mean to exercise authority over your wife? It means to lead her as Christ does a church. It means to love her like Christ. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's a laying down your life for her. It's being the first to forgive. How, does, how did Christ love us? He loved us first. He forgave us. He, he reconciled us to himself while we are still enemies. So husbands, reflect the love of Christ. Be the first to forgive, the first to reconcile, the first to go to scripture and say, we need to follow that. That is manhood. That's what it means to be a man. It means to plant your, your feet firmly on the word of God and say, I will not be moved. I'm not going to be swayed by cultural pressures. I'm not going to be swayed by, by what our family thinks or, or by, by what our children are doing or even what by my wife is saying. I'm going to stand on the word of God and I'm going to lead my family in faithfulness. I'm going to work on my own heart and I'm going to love the Lord my God and I'm going to teach my family to do the same. That's manhood. That's what the scripture is talking about. It's not raising your voice. It's not coming in, laying down the law, puffing out your chest, using your strength. It's not fixing the car. It's not paying the bills. It's not, it's not knowing how to, how to do those things around the house. It's not manhood. Manhood is Christ's likeness in a marriage relationship. It's leading in love and in sacrificial service, being kind and being gentle. That's manhood. That's much harder than flexing your muscles and puffing your chest out and having your way. Now for women, what does it mean to be a woman? Women can either hear, as we see, can either be, be domineering and, and seek to usurp authority or they could also be entirely passive. They can say, well, if, if it says I need to submit to my husband, then and sorry, honey, I'm just going to sit back and you make all these decisions. And, and if we go down in flames, it's, it's your fault. So I'm not going to say anything. It's, it's, it's your call. It's your call. You, you, you go ahead. That's, that's, not, that's not submissiveness. That's passivity. That's not being a helper to your husband. That, that's abdicating your responsibility to be a helper. To be, to be bone of his bone and flesh of flesh. To be, be at his side. To, to help him. 
to keep him strong, to, to help him protect and to provide and to lead spiritually in your home. Neither is womanhood being controlling or manipulative. Okay, women can't use their, their strength to assert their authority, but they can often do it with emotions and manipulations. And often they're quite good at it. Um, and, that, and that is how they can get their way. And so that's not submission either. Okay, so it's not, not a passivity and, and it's not a, a manipulating kind of rulership or, or a rule over your husband. Rather, it's together, encouraging him to be faithful, encouraging him to lead like Christ. And, it, and it's submitting him like, like the church does to Christ in the Lord. Wanting him to, to lead. And I think that's every woman's desire. Even, even, if, even the strongest feminist in our culture wants a man to lead deep down inside. A man to step up and to protect her and to provide for her. And especially, I was talking about Christian, not just protection and provision in, in worldly areas, but in terms of the word of God. To lead her in doctrine and in the scriptures. To show her, to lead her to Christ and the woman is to be submissive to her husband as he does that. So we're going to end here. I have an opportunity to have some questions. Now let's, let's as a community trust in God, trust in his image reflecting in male and female, see this as an important issue. And then also as a community, as a church, as husbands and wives here, let's reflect the image of God to our culture. As our culture continues to go down the, the, the road of perversity let us be a shining light of the image of God, how God has designed male and female, how he has designed marriage and sexuality. Let's show the world what God intended in his great creation of manhood and womanhood. Let's pray.